0: You are listening to All Things Reconsidered, Episode 5. You can also view this episode and previous episodes on Peter Bogosian's YouTube channel. More information on the project is online at peterboghossian.com, substack.boghossian.com, and nationalprogressalliance.org. This episode of All Things Reconsidered, is supported by the unquenchable flame within the lamp of Diogenes. Visit PeterBogosian.com to learn more.
1: I'm Peter Bogosian. Welcome to our fifth and final episode this season of All Things Reconsidered, where we consider what in the world happened to NPR. If you missed the previous four episodes, you can find links in the description. In today's episode, I sit down with my good friend Matt Thornton, fifth-degree black belt and Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, owner of Straight Blast Gym, and author of The Gift of Violence. The first segment is about the two-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd which NPR somehow connects with the mass shooting in Buffalo by a white supremacist. The second is about obesity, with an emphasis on fat shaming. We'll also hear the final Morning Sedition from journalist Gina Gamboni. As always, we start with comments from former listeners about why they stopped listening and supporting NPR.
2: I stopped listening to NPR about five years ago. I call this event in my life the Bonobo Problem. I had been in the habit of listening to NPR as I drove to and from my internships and my graduate classes. The odd hours of driving allowed me to listen to a wide variety of NPR programming, and that's how I caught on to the art that NPR has mastered. Every show is polished to an impossible sheen with a perfect formula of music, voice acting, writing, and it makes their listeners feel very smart. Every minute I listened provided some impression of education, and I could feel my own intellect rising to an impossible height. One day, a story about bonobos came on. A great ape expert had been invited on, and she eloquently explained that though bonobos are our closest genetic relative, they are distinctly nonviolent a reality that none of the other ape species share significantly. She went on to extol the bonobos' virtue and claim that human peace. And very nearly that the salvation of all humankind would be found in that 1% difference in our genetic makeup. We were so close. She really drove that home. We're just so close. And that's the key. I had made it home just a few minutes before the end of the interview, but I sat in my car to finish that learning experience. Intrigued with what I had learned, I went inside and quickly Googled bonobos. In the space of about 40 seconds, I learned that that particular expert was a lone voice in her field, and that nearly everything she had said was flatly incorrect. Bonobos are not innately peaceful. Faced with a lack of resources or food or space, they will kill one another, just like all the other great apes. Just like us. NPR provided me with a feeling of superiority, but all I really had was an unfounded certainty and something that I knew less about than when I had started listening.
3: Interesting. Yeah, th- thoughts on that? Well, I think you and I have seen this time and time again, but NPR will have uh, quote-unquote experts on that aren't actually experts or are really from one kind of set of ideology, and they don't have people on that actually represent right. you know, the view. And what happens is people can do their own research. This guy went home and did a Google search. Sounds like it took less than a couple minutes <laughs> I know, yeah. and found out, no, actually bonobos are like the other primates and they can be violent. And it leaves me wondering after I hear this, what's going on with NPR? Are they either just willfully dishonest or are they that bad at journalism that they don't actually take the two minutes to search out and see if this guest.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's dishonesty and I don't think it's that they're bad journalists in the traditional sense i just think that they've been ideologically captured they're operating from a position of ideology and so they present something w- one of the things he said that i thought was interesting is that he knew less about the topic as having listened to it absolutely it yeah, was misinformed as opposed to being informed <clears throat> yeah it, and it's if if i can bring in martial arts it's kind of like it's worse to learn a martial art that's takes you away from reality, you'd right. be better off not learning anything, looking at a wall. Right. You're better off
3: not knowing whether or not a snake is poisonous and therefore avoiding it than thinking the snake is definitely not poisonous. And so you go and pick it up and get bit. So, uh, pretense to knowledge, thinking, you know, something you don't know is always more dangerous than knowing you don't know it. And that's the problem with, uh, these kind of stories, whatever the topic comes up, people are doing their own research, which you can do now with the internet and right. realizing actually that everything they said was either untrue or very
1: fringe. Yeah, two more things that struck me uh, as we've been doing this and I listen to these testimonials. Whenever NPR reports something that I know about, Mm -hmm. it's almost always false. Of course. Like, it's factually not accurate. And the second thing you said is about pretending to know things you don't know one thing I've seen in a move in the culture at large that's reflected in NPR is we've gone from pretending to know things you don't know to pretending to not know things we all know. Yep. Like what is a woman? Exactly what I was thinking. All right, let's listen to that was Caleb. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, Here is uh, Jenny.
4: Hi, my name is Jenny and I am in my early forties. I stopped listening to NPR in 2008-2009 and this is right around the times of the stock market housing crash and when swine flu hit the airwaves and at that time I was attending college. I had a lot on my plate and I generally thought that I was well informed but I increasingly found that my drives to school I was becoming more and more stressed out because of the stock market the housing market I don't own any stocks I don't own any housing I was in my late 20s and I remember feeling so terrified that I was going to lose all of my money which I had maybe $500 I didn't have anything and they just can. Then they, then then swine flu came out, and I was terrified. I was like, "Do they want me to be?" I was just looking around in my vehicle, and you know, no one in Michigan had swine flu. And what is happening on the west coast? If the west coast has swine flu, what is that? And I have to take a shot for this. <laughs> I just felt that they were, that NPR was overreaching in both instances, overreporting about the stock market, housing crash, and about the swine flu. And this is not to say that people definitely lost their homes and lost a lot of money in this at the housing crash, but it really didn't affect me and it wasn't a big deal. And I also felt that, um, well, my father had asked me at that time, because he owns stocks, he's like, Jenny, what, what do I do? To what, should I sell my stocks? And I just told him, no, hold on, because eventually they'll come out of this. And he did. He hung on to his stocks, and a few years later, his stocks completely recovered and came back into the positive, which <laughs> is the correct idea, I believe, to have about life. Like there's the media is constantly giving us all this fear. And if we can just take and step back and take a deep breath and think about what we're doing, then we can we can be in control of our lives. And so I stopped listening to NPR. Never again. I'm done with their calm panic. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Calm panic. panic. That's That's a great way to put it.
1: I love that compact. Yeah. She seemed like such a nice person.
3: She does. She gave her, her dad uh, good advice as well on the stock market.
1: So the idea of overreaching, the idea of fear, I do think that in largely it's, it bleeds, it leads, but there's something even worse with NPR. And it's, if you really, and I have now listened to, I don't even know how many hours of NPR for this project. Tell me about it. It's almost something, almost always something systemic yes something t- the vague police force, something systemic the system systemic. the cap- capitalist structure mm-hmm. the, the there's something endemic that creates a feeling of helplessness um, that that's that's the part of the narrative that's what they're pushing that's a huge part of the narrative and and uh, you know we've heard
3: examples on the show of them talking about police officers literally hunting people and you know that kind of thing is just a terrible thing to be mi- in passing that message on to the American public when it's patently not true is both dangerous and pernicious and uh, NPR should be ashamed of that. Yeah, it's
1: irresponsible.
3: Irresponsible at at the best. Yeah. You're going to, I think it's true of news in general, but the more you turn off, especially cable news, the happier you're going to be. And after having listened to NPR for a long time now, recently that I absolutely say that's true of NPR. You're going to be a happier person. The less you listen to NPR.
1: All right, let's listen to Josh's testimony. Here we go.
5: Good morning, Uh, All Things Reconsidered. I appreciate you guys doing this. My name is Josh. I'm from Michigan. I'm 48. Uh, I have degrees in uh, language and literature. I love literature. I love the outdoors. And I used to love NPR when I was a young man. Uh, In my 20s and early 30s, I listened to quite a bit of NPR. I liked the human interest stories. Um, I, I always was a little bit put off by some of the superfluous pathos with which they delivered it. And the sort of victim narrative, but as I got a little older, I would offset NPR with sports radio um, to balance that out. Um, but now I can't, I can't. Now I just listen to NPR maybe the last six, seven, eight years. I listen to it strictly as an observer to check in on how um, poor their product is and how slanted it is. Uh, a couple of things I've noticed. We are now six or seven years into the Donald Trump as a politician era. And I can think of one story that I have seen and heard on NPR in which there was genuine interest and curiosity by an NPR reporter in, insofar as why half of America voted for Donald Trump. Uh, one story, and it was in Kansas, I believe. Um, Trump at one point was 56-1 in his primary endorsements this, this summer, and no curiosity from NPR about this. Um, however they have a lot of uh, they put a lot of energy into delivering stories like this another black suspect killed by a white cop that's exactly how they say it a couple days later when some context for one of these stories comes out and we find out that it was not exactly the way npr presented it they have no interest whatsoever in unpacking that or talking about the issue whatsoever they just want to racially gaslight us and it's always white and black as if these are the only two races and as if there's only one type of poor racial relationship that ever happens and it's between a white and a black when the white's the bad guy uh this and this is so shameless and shameful this coverage Um, it's shameful they should be interviewing roland fryer the black economist from harvard who did a big study on this they should be interviewing him to discuss this all the time they're not uh, they should be interviewing Glenn Lowry. They're not. Um, they're just gaslighting us into a civil war uh, and then calling us all racists and bigots all the time. And when a black nationalist with BLM all over his Facebook page drives his vehicle through a Christmas parade and murders innocent human beings, NPR says, <laughs> a vehicle crashed the car? through the a parade vehicle? today in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This is so shameful. Um, I think NPR should lose their federal funding. Defund NPR. And then make NPR great again. Thanks.
1: I love that one. That was fantastic. Very clear. Couldn't agree with it more. Couldn't agree with more, except for the defunding thing. Okay, so... Let's talk about a theme that constantly comes up. Why doesn't he, he, why why isn't Glenn Lowry on there? Why why isn't Roland Fryer on there? Why isn't Thomas Sewell on there? Why isn't Larry Elder on there? why aren't black conservatives or people from the community? They always talk about representation of people from the community. There's just so much to talk about. He talked about I like that he listened to it as an observer, mm-hmm. like he was an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the word slanted is good. We haven't used that, but that's a good word that, that's come up. And I like the story about Trump. Like there's just no interest or curiosity. There's f- from a position that forwards a narrative, a mm-hmm. story, a, a set of conclusions they want you to adopt – no curiosity. And it is true. They really are fermenting a kind of civil war. Oh, they are for sure. They're, racial hatred, racial animus
3: is due in large part to our media. And NPR is one of the worst actors in that. You know, anybody who is familiar with police shootings or the data related to police shootings, you're not going to be able to listen to an NPR story about that subject without being infuriated. Cause you're going to realize they're lying to you and they do it over and over again. And, um, and like he mentioned, we talked about this before, the Waukesha coverage, but the the, the difference between the Waukesha coverage and what happened, for example, with George Floyd, right. the way those two things are covered, it's absolutely obscene. Can you go
1: into some specifics? So people watching this thing go, what, what is he talking about? Like, can you just go into a little well, bit of- Well,
3: anytime there's any kind of issue where a suspect is killed in the process of being arrested and, and in- Almost every single case, they're resisting arrest. Right, uh, rare exception. They, as long as the officer's white and the suspect is black, NPR is going to go all in. They're going to immediately assume the reason that the op- that that incident happened was because the suspect's skin color. That's why it happened. They're going to assume the suspect was unarmed. They're going to assume the officer was uh, mistaken and actually out to look to murder that suspect. Inevitably, data comes out, and it shows that there's no evidence whatsoever has anything to do with race. Usually the suspect is fighting back and resisting arrest and the officer was in fear of his or her life and they were doing what they had to do to defend themselves at the moment. Not always. We talked about this before. There's one or two cases a year where they're not and those officers are usually prosecuted. prosecuted. But that's the vast majority of these incidents. And if people are asking, well, how often does that happen? In the United States, when we talk about unarmed black Americans, it happens about 12 times a year. Okay, 12 times a year. so so but but if you listen to NPR, you would think it's happening thousands of right. times.
1: You would think that there's a kind of holocaust. and
3: just just to finish up on yeah. that now compare that to Waukesha. You had a suspect who wrote all over his social media that he hated white people, he was a BLM supporter, wanted to kill white people for all the reasons that NPR puts forward about mm-hmm. systemic racism gets in his vehicle, drives through a parade, hitting children and elderly people and murdering people, driving all the way through the parade, and NPR's coverage of it is a truck right. hits suspects.
1: Yeah, I remember that. I, remember, I can was Can you just imagine shocked. being
3: one of those victims? Yeah. Or being somebody that was there on the parade and hearing that? Like, can you imagine what you would feel when you hear that from NPR?
1: It's absolutely shameful. Yeah, and, and if and if the... Situation were, were were reversed, they would say, you know, white man drove through black. But then the, the only I- thing you'd hear about for right. six months. that The idea for why they don't do that, and I'm trying to, st- I'm not even steelman. I'm trying to present the view is because they believe that it can only be racist for embedded power structures like that. That the it's not an act of racism if a black person is driving a vehicle into somebody. Because white people have power in the system, so that's the kind of underlying ideology that that goes behind that um i I, I want to talk about a few other things that he said that so that that were so important. He talked about overreaching um, so i the thing, the only point that I disagree with him about, and if you've just quickly, if you've looked at the statistics about uh, civil war, I just read something else. One third of Americans are ready to take up arms against their fellow citizens in a civil war. That's insane.
3: Yeah. And it has a lot to do with this. Absolutely. NPR is not the only offender, but it is a major offender.
1: Okay. So the thing that I disagree with him about, and we've spoken about this and I know you disagree, I don't want NPR defunded. He wants NPR – I want NPR to be a station where all Americans, independent of political affiliation, can go and listen and trust –
3: I would like that. And if we can do that, if we can, if NPR is capable of accomplishing that, then I'm all for continuing to fund it. I think it would be great to have a news source in our country that was not relying on ad revenue. I think that would be really important. If we could get an unbiased news source that focused on data that didn't have to go by the, the clickbait type model of making money or the commercial model of making money that we see on cable TV, that would be fantastic. But if that doesn't happen, if instead all we're going to get is propaganda, far-left propaganda that's designed by its very nature to drive a wedge between American citizens and make race relations in our country worse, I absolutely want it defunded.
1: And now we hear from award-winning journalist, producer, and former host at NPR affiliate stations, Gina Gamboni. She talks about NPR's superfluous pathos, one of the former listeners just mentioned. Here she is with Morning Sedition.
0: From time to time, we hear a call to defund NPR. Often this is from people who lean right after they hear about an NPR story that showed bias or inaccuracy against a conservative politician or platform. Today on Morning Sedition, I'll tell you why I disagree with defunding NPR and where I think our energy could be better spent. (laughs) First off, NPR only receives a small amount of its funding from taxpayer dollars. You could make the argument that it should receive no taxpayer dollars at all, and that's fair enough. But really, the place to focus your energy is on your local public radio station. Public radio stations across the country receive federal grants through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And yes, a lot of that money goes to pay NPR for programming. But stations also use that money to bring you life-saving weather reports during hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards, floods, etc. I have personally spent many nights alongside other journalists sleeping on the floor or on a cot in a public radio station during a natural disaster to make sure the public is informed about risks and about what help is available. A good public radio station brings local voices on the air on a regular basis, and that means politicians, community leaders, artists, and regular people who have something interesting to say. Your local station could and should reflect the people in your community and what's important to them. Newspapers, we know, have suffered tremendously in the 21st century. A public radio station with a data-driven, ethical, non-ideological newsroom can fill the gaps left by thinning content in local newspapers. Public radio stations are commercial-free. Yes, they have underwriting, but it's pretty awesome to have underwriting messages instead of commercials. I really do love public radio. Instead of trying to defund NPR, which can survive without government money as long as they continue to receive corporate support and manage their big endowment – Why not try to disentangle your public radio station from the outsized influence of NPR? Talk to other people who support or used to support your local station. Physically go in and meet with leadership at your public station. Tell them you want more diversity of ideas. Tell them you want data-driven stories and you expect reporters to ask hard questions of all people in power. Tell them you want the public put back at the forefront of public radio in place of the ideological drivel that's coming mainly from D.C., New York, Boston, Minneapolis, and L.A. Demand news that is thoughtful and rational instead of soaked in pathos and victimhood. When I resigned this past spring from the public station where I worked, I was very forthright about the reason. I could no longer tolerate listening to NPR and using my voice and skills to promote NPR programming. I was surprised to discover how many other people felt the same way. I knew I was not alone, but most people in public radio aren't talking about how much they don't like what's going on with NPR because they don't want to lose their job. I encourage everyone to try to make a change in public radio at the local level And it starts with summoning up the courage to be honest and speak up. If public radio changes, NPR will have to follow or something better will take its place. That's all for this season of Morning Sedition. Thanks for listening.
1: That was Gina Gamboni, award-winning journalist, producer, and former host at NPR affiliate stations. Thank you again, Gina, for joining us on All Things Reconsidered. And now, it's time for Matt and I to reconsider the incredible news NPR launches across the airwaves. And when I say incredible, I mean it quite literally. Impossible to believe. NPR prides itself on embracing the science. But what embracing the science actually means is things that comport with their ideology. If it doesn't comport with their ideology, they consider it a dangerous idea that should not be platformed. That's a dangerous idea. Which is itself a dangerous idea. Correct. Uh, If it doesn't fit with NPR's ideology, it becomes dangerous. The following story is from 1A. It It aired May 4th, 2021. Let's take a listen, and I will say this story is particularly deranged.
6: This is 1A. I'm Jen White in Washington. The fat acceptance movement has been around for decades, fighting for more inclusive policies for all bodies. But in 2021, it's moved far beyond that. While the average weight of Americans has increased in the last two decades, so has America's anti-fat biases. In twenty nineteen, a twenty nineteen study based on responses to Harvard's implicit association test found anti fat bias increased by forty percent between two thousand four and twenty ten.
1: Okay. I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you haven't listened to this clip yet, so this, no, is, good. My, this is my fresh. first time. This is this is gonna be fresh for you. I listened to some of it and then didn't want to spoil it just because it was so truly deranged. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at not only the claims they're making, but how those claims are, quote-unquote, investigated or handled by the journalist.
7: So the first thing I want to say is I am fat, and that's my preferred language to talk about myself and my size and the body that I occupy.
1: The body that she occupies. Okay, so this is really important from Charlotte Cooper's uh, she's the main figure in Britain, the, the fat studies person. So they believe that there are only narratives. There are no um, – everything is a story. It's a story they tell themselves. So if you'll notice in this uh, piece, they don't use the word obesity when referring to fat people because they, they think that obesity is a medical narrative, and they believe one narrative is just as, as – legitimate as any any other. So you'll notice first thing that they don't, they don't use the word obesity.
7: I think often we are averse to using the word fat, um, and tend to land on these very gendered terms, um, like curvy plus size, uh, more to love.
1: Okay. I'm going to stop this a lot because this
3: this is a lot to unpack. You know, I think most Americans probably don't know that there is such a thing as a fat studies program, to be honest with you. If you're outside academia, you'd have no idea. Yeah,
1: and you'd also believe that if you heard it, you would think it did things like measure A1Cs or how many carbs, or do you need electrolytes after you work out or what have you. But it's a fat advocacy. It's to change the moral mind and to accept fat and to promulgate insane notions about it's called a uh, has being healthy at every size. Okay, so you'll notice also the uh, interspersed, you know, they'll talk about intersectionality, and you'll notice also the gendered and race language. So this is like a suite of ideas that are all bundled together, and that populates this individual's thinking.
7: Burly, beefy, um, so on and so forth, and I think that uh, one of the big things we need to do is take away... Um, you know, the fact that, that when I say I'm fat, people often say, oh, no, you're not. You're gorgeous. And uh, those two things can be, both be true at the same time. Um, I'm both fat and pretty hot. Um, both of those
6: things are true. Elizabeth, thanks for leaving us that message. Today, we're talking about weight bias and fat acceptance with Aubrey Gordon. She's a columnist at Self Magazine and the author of the book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. Aubrey, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Yvette Dion. She's the editor-in-chief of Bitch Media. That's a nonprofit feminist media organization that responds to and critiques pop culture. Yvette, welcome to the program.
8: Thank you so much for having me.
6: Now, we want to note that neither Aubrey nor Yvette are doctors. Often when we talk about fatness, mm. the conversation veers quickly toward the topic of health. Today, her focus is on weight bias.
3: Funny that. Weird that it would veer towards health. <laughs> Weird. Especially in the midst of a COVID pandem- pandemic, which is when this was
1: aired. Right. And so you would think that they would have what on the show? You would think they'd have a doctor. Right. And I mean, even more than that, like an in internal medicine or someone who specializes in these issues to speak intelligently, even if you believe it's a narrative, you would still think that you would invite someone on. You would think we'll talk about
3: this, I'm sure, later. But the one thing that we knew very early on with COVID was that the two things, the two biggest issues factors in death were being very elderly or being morbidly obese correct. and the fact that that information wasn't spread wider throughout the united states undoubtedly contributed to a lot of death i didn't see a single message anywhere
1: from the u.s surgeon general anyone at any level telling people
3: to i don't know watch their sugar right. lower their weight that would have been the number one thing you could do to stay healthy during cor- the pandemic not cor- put a little correct. cloth mask over your face but maybe
1: lose correct. Some weight correct and then that people wear it below their, mm-hmm. their nose too i still see that all the time Lose weight.
6: Today, her focus is on weight bias, the way it impacts people in their lives and work, and some of the ways our guests and others are working to make the world more inclusive for everyone.
1: There it is again, inclusivity. There it is again. It's part of an ideology.
6: Regardless of body size. So first, I just want to hear from both of you how you define fat acceptance. Aubrey, I'll come to you first.
9: Yeah, I mean, I would say fat acceptance is a movement that has been around as you noted for for a long time. Um, Some folks will sort of use different names to describe their fat politics. Um, uh, I personally uh, talk about fat justice and fat liberation.
1: Fat politics, fat justice, fat liberation.
9: But the basic concept is that um, stigma isn't helping fat people. It isn't making fewer fat people. It isn't making us healthier. Um, and it isn't uh, creating a better society for any of us. Um, so I would say that that's actually a really interesting question.
3: It's also empirical. So is there less stigma now or more stigma? And do we have more obesity or less obesity? <laughs> I would argue that now there's less stigma than there would have been. Let's just say the 60s or 70s for sure. and we have far more obesity which goes completely counter to her narrative so i'd like to see some data on sure. that sure
1: it 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 could be that there are other causal factors for sure uh, uh but yeah but that's the problem when people don't value evidence and they want to push acceptance as opposed to whatever i mean they they look at the whole body of medical literature as a narrative so what, what if she's of, wrong well of, co- of course it's just it's that's backward land yeah um <clears throat> but it really is an interesting question should what should the role and this is a little off topic but i think it's worth mentioning what should the role of stigma be in society i mean i think clearly we've stigmatized the wrong things in the past like homosexuality etc um but does that mean i don't know i just think it's an it's an interesting question what role should should stigma play in enforcing the rules of society I guess it depends if those rules of society are just and moral, what have you. But all right, anyway,
9: so I would say that fat acceptance is just simply the idea that uh, fat bodies are a fact of our world and are worth accepting and embracing as they are, not just as uh, sort of before pictures, right? Um, instead of like in the context of like a before and after weight loss photo, right? Mm-hmm. That we aren't just sort of like waiting to become thin, but that we are people as we are now and we are people who deserve jobs and health care and just like baseline.
3: I, I, I Why, mean, who doesn't think that people who are overweight deserve jobs and health care? That's an odd statement to make. I'm, I'm curious what fat liberation entails. Liberate, liberation from what? Uh, are liberation there laws negative against stereotypes? fat people getting a
1: house? Yeah. About bodies. I mean, I mean, it is. It is. I mean, it's such a complicated, nuanced issue that she could, <laughs> that the, the, the journalist could have asked so many questions about. It does seem that f- you have to have some kind of criteria to discriminate against people. Like, y- you can't have a fat stewardess, like a morbidly obese stewardess who has trouble going down the. Like you, you, you can't have a, a Would blind, you want a blind, a morbidly blind pilot.
3: obese firefighter. Would you want a morbidly obese firefighter no. or a morbidly obese police officer if you're no? If you need a police officer to be on scene as soon as possible, there's certain jobs where physical fitness is just a requirement. I don't want to see morbidly obese Navy SEALs as an example, and that has nothing to do with being uh, of discrimination. That has to do with broader concern for the importance of their job and being able to save lives.
1: Right, so, so they the can discharge their duties. So they can discharge their duty. So they
3: can discharge their duty. The context is everything here. There's some things that being very fat would prevent you from being able to do.
9: Correct. You know, a baseline ability to meet our own needs.
6: Yvette, what about you?
8: I agree completely. I would also add that fat acceptance is a movement that treats bodies as if they're acceptable in their current state. That a body is not something that is constantly in flux and therefore being fat is a choice.
1: I don't know like acceptable to do what? Like what? Socially acceptable? Acceptable in what context? Like it's just an odd it's an odd framing for people who believe in the in the primacy of narratives. So it's like a it's like a an objective statement about people who fundamentally and you'll hear as the piece goes on fundamentally participate in this intersectionality and a uh, uh, broad, broad-based relativism.
8: Being fat is a choice. That people, no matter what size their body is, deserve, as Aubrey said, access to health care and protections against discrimination in the workplace. And that.
1: Well, that's the thing. Protections against uh, obviously they need access to health care. Obviously, mm-hmm. but there sh- are some professions that being obese should just de facto disqualify. Correct. I mean, it just seems so odd. Fighter sick- pilot. Huh?
3: <laughs> Fighter pilot. I don't mean to make light of it, but there's so so many things that are jockey. just very obvious here. Uh, that there, there's no know, context for what you said. A jockey on a,
1: a horse. Uh, right. It? Yeah.
8: A fat person's body is perfectly acceptable in the way that it is. It's not a body that is.
1: I wonder if they had a wand, if you gave them a wand, and say you could wave this wand and you could you you'd lose weight and not gain it back, would you wave the wand?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I wonder if they're just if they've kind of latched on to this idea. Well,
8: that is in, in the process of becoming thin.
6: You know, when we think about Elizabeth's voicemail, Aubrey, I'm curious what you think about the way we describe fat people.
9: Yeah. I mean, I will say, uh, I would just put a big check mark next to everything that Elizabeth said. Honestly, um, I can't tell you how many times, uh, I will sort of describe my body in neutral terms when it's relevant. Um, and just say, you know, I'm a fat lady and they don't have that in my size or whatever the thing may be. Right. Um, and I met with exactly the sort of phenomenon that uh, Elizabeth described, which is like, no, 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 don't say that about yourself. And I think, uh, what that reveals to me isn't that uh i am a bad person for being fat or that being fat is a terrible thing but it tells me that the person who's trying to dissuade me from calling myself fat thinks of being fat as a really terrible fate
3: no no that's the person that's saying that to her is probably trying not to hurt her feelings
1: yeah that's what i was and that's just
3: a that's a a way to go through life where you're just going to have constant conflict everywhere you go. People are, people are trying to be nice to you. Yeah. It's basically what it is. Yeah. And, yeah, I, and, and whatever she's talking about as far as we can get into this later, but there always seems to be this obsession with language versus reality or right. the descriptor, as opposed to what we're actually describing. The problem with being morbidly obese is it kills you. Right. Right. It, it leads to depression, it causes early death. The number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease, followed very closely by cancer, and then we get into like diabetes and yeah. things like that. My all mom those had things type two diabetes is a complication from our weight, the
1: doctor. All said those that things was, are
3: are vastly are made far worse when you're morbidly obese. And it was the same thing with COVID. We saw so many people who were morbidly obese that died from COVID. And we know, forget about all this. Concern over language in terms of reality and studies, we know that people are a lot happier
1: and a lot healthier when they lose weight. Yeah, and I know that when I've been overweight, I haven't been comfortable in my body. No, so I can't believe that
3: going up of not even being more weight would make you part of not being comfortable. Is because the world's imposing this not being comfortable on you. Right. Part of not being comfortable is the fact that you don't feel good.
1: Th- that's exactly which is right.
3: why people tend to die because it causes your heart to give out and different things like that. There's there's a serious issue here of of a medical issue that's not even being addressed that they're pretending doesn't exist as if, as if changing the language would somehow solve that problem. That problem's not going to go away.
1: They don't have a doctor on the show. No, but we don't need a doctor on the show. I mean, how many studies you do, we do we have? Need do- you'd kind of need, some, well, you need one, not you need some kind of pushback. Well,
3: you should. Yeah. But, but we don't need one to show that how unhealthy it is for you to be morbidly obese. And there's a big distinction yeah, between yeah. being slightly overweight and being uncomfortable <laughs> with your body image, which comes from social media and all kinds of stuff. And that's a legitimate concern. And being morbidly obese. Right. Someone who weighs four, or 500 pounds. Or even 300 pounds. 350 pounds. Yeah. Their entire life is altered. The things that they can do and not right. do is changed. The quality
1: of life is the dramatically decreased. The quality of life is decreased, dramatically
3: blocking. decreased. Yeah. And, we all, and everybody knows that
9: right? Thinks of being fat as being potentially unlovable, unwantable, unworthy, all of these different things. And uh, I do think there's quite a bit of space to sort of interrogate.
1: Interrogate. There's another word.
9: Ways in which we think and talk about fatness and fat people and how we can do that in a way that is respectful of the language that fat people choose to use for ourselves. Um, And in a way that sort of, again, interrogates our own sort of preconceptions that we bring to conversations about fatness and fat people. Um, And those preconceptions often end up sidelining.
1: There's the language thing again. And, you know, when you hear this word interrogate, that's a kind of, it participates in this broader, quote unquote, discourse you know, critical social justice, social justice.
9: Sidelining the actual wants and
6: needs uh, and autonomy of fat people. Yvette, how has the way you, you think about yourself and your body evolved over time?
8: It has evolved considerably. When I was growing up and I had been a fat person, I was a fat child. Um, so I've been a fat person for the majority of my life. And I thought for a long time about fat as a sort of pejorative or fat almost fatness almost as if it were a curse. Something that my body had been cursed with and that I needed to exercise and shed in order to be treated acceptably in our society. And
1: it's funny that the this the concept is like that the problem is externally with other
3: people. Right. It's what they, what she seems to be trying to do is to control how other people speak and the language they use, which is backwards instead. And I think this is one of those lessons we're supposed to learn when we're in kindergarten. Instead of trying to control how other people speak, what you should be
1: doing is control how you react to what other people Correct. say. Yeah, we've also moved away from the sticks and stones may may break my bones. But there's no like how I feel when... I gain 10 pounds or when I lose 10 pounds, there's no, I mean, that would comport with their ideology of subjectivity, feelings, et cetera. But it's just this idea that the problem is externally how this is perceived as opposed to any other problem.
3: Look, if you're going to go through your life trying to control the language everybody else uses, whether you try and control that legally or just by being... Uh, aggressive all the time and and confronting people, you are going to be miserable. Yeah. Add on an extra two hundred pounds, and you've got a real recipe for disaster here. Right. Right.
8: In order to be able to go to school and not feel like I had this target on my back, but as I got older and I came into the fat acceptance movement as a young person in my twenties,
1: the, there is a movement for this. There is a, mo- a th- there is a movement for yeah. this. There is a movement to try to change other people's attitudes and language as opposed to... How about a movement to get Americans to eat
3: healthier? Yeah. That'd be worthwhile.
8: I came to realize that there was a different way in which I could think about my body and the way it moves through the world, and that there were other people, a community of people, who were doing that unlearning work together.
1: Unlearning work. A community of people who, who... I mean, just even think about the mental gymnastics it takes to justify this to yourself. They have a community of other people who have this idea that she is that, and I love the use of the word community, it's everywhere now, who she has kind of plugged into to give justification for her I don't know, health issues, body size, whatever you want to call it. Yeah.
8: And to be quite frank, it was it was mind-blowing to me. It was fascinating to me. It allowed me to think and theorize about what my theorize. body does when it moves to the world, how it is purposely disruptive, the history of that.
1: This is all language from critical theory, all of it.
8: And the ways in which I could use that in some respect to my advantage in terms of fully understanding... Um, what it means to have a fat body and then advocating for myself
1: but i think it's just the opposite i don't think that i think that this takes her away from reality oh yeah for sure yeah so so she she thinks she's gaining understanding of what it means to have a fat body but exactly the opposite is happening
8: for myself In the places where i see that my fat body is is uh thought about differently in the way that i think about it myself and so now that i'm in my early 30s I think far less about my body itself, and far more about how we can create a world that is more inclusive and accepting.
1: Bingo! It's the uh, it's the move toward the other person, and the and the, and the rejection of personal responsibility,
8: mm-hmm. and tolerant and welcoming to all fat people and all people whose bodies are considered or perceived as deviant.
1: Did you notice that little slip in there? Deviant. Yeah,
3: deviant. deviant. I don't know anybody that thinks of obese people are necessarily deviant.
1: Yeah. And I was thinking like, is she, what is she talking about? Handicapped people? Is it a way to like throw, Mm. like what, what is the, but again, I would love the interviewer to say, well, what do you mean by deviant? What does, what does that mean?
6: We got this email from Edward who says, I'm 75 years old and have been a fat person all my life. I have a long history of the fat experience from both a discrimination standpoint and from the experience of underestimated expectations from coworkers and people in my community. People lack awareness that they have a fatness bias based on my looks. In spite of my fatness, I have overcome roadblocks and have had a very successful life. This came from understanding and embracing my fatness and creating an approach to dealing with people as a fat person. I've had a career as an engineer, manager, and journalist overcoming fatness obstructions in my personal and work life.
1: I just, I, I, that, that just seems, what am I missing about this story?
3: Well, there's no data, there's no information. I don't know what she means by fatness obstructions. Like, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that she couldn't be, for example, a firefighter or uh, airline you know, a pilot or something? I don't know. what. What is the obstruction due to her weight?
1: Yeah, and you know, the other thing, the, the journalist doesn't even have to really push back, but they can just ask thoughtful questions. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, give me an example of that.
6: Aubrey, where do you see weight bias the most in society?
1: Weight bias, that's the other thing. Oof,
9: that's a big question. So, I mean, I think... One of the ways um, is uh, the one that was just lifted up by your listener, which is um, job discrimination.
1: Have you noticed a big question lifted up by the listener? Have you noticed like all the language about weight in here?
9: Job discrimination is is a real issue. So 28% of fat women and 23% of fat men report experiencing overt job discrimination. And there are um, sort of salary surveys and research that's been done um, that show a range of sort of differences, but they reliably show that fat people and particularly very fat people make significantly less money.
1: And yeah, maybe there are other causal factors at play. Maybe they suffer from depression and and they eat, and there there could be a myriad of other reasons for that.
9: Than those who are seen as being thin or having a quote unquote healthy weight. Um, the
1: Did you catch that too? Quote unquote healthy weight. Quote unquote as if healthy. that's uh, under debate, right?
9: one of the most sort of striking of those estimates, um, showed that, uh, fat people may make up to $19,000 less each year, um, than their thinner counterparts. So that's a major one. Um, I would say for me personally, there are two places where it comes up the most, the most, um, one is, uh, in uh the airplanes um when i'm when i'm uh flying which i'm not currently doing as many of us aren't um but there is just sort of astonishing levels of uh scapegoating uh of of uh you know sort of dirty looks um but also people who are willing to complain about me um and are um sort of gunning to get me kicked off of a flight. Right. Um, that's happened to me a number of times that folks will just sort of openly complain about my body in my presence, um, often to the flight crew and often with the express request that I be removed from the plane.
3: Okay. Uh, I've actually had this happen. I've seen this happen because I fly all the time for my job. Yeah. What's probably going on there is she's probably taking up three seats half the seat on her left and half the seat on her right. And the other person isn't able to either sit down or get comfortable and they're getting crushed by her and they're uncomfortable by it. And that's not because they hate fat people. It's because they paid a lot of money for that seat and they would like to have the actual, you know, whatever amount of inches they paid for as far as that seat goes.
1: Correct. Uh, I think that the way to think about that is, those people paid for the seats, but if she wants to pay for two seats, she's certainly welcome to do that. And my guess is if she did that, nobody's going to, compl- nobody randomly is going to go around and complain about people. At least not that I've ever seen. I fly no. all the time. There'd be no reason to. <clears throat>
9: um, I should say I wear a size 26.
1: I don't have any idea how big a size 26 is. Pretty big. I would imagine if people are complaining about her in her presence.
9: Um, so I'm sort of right on the edge, frankly, of a uh, one-seat-or-two situation. Um, and I think that often folks don't know that even when we buy a second seat, those second seats may be resold. Um, we may pay for a second seat that isn't actually available.
1: I'm not sure if you buy a second seat how it can be resold. Well, she she could
3: complain about that. They'd give her a different flight. That's happened to me before where the flight's been oversold, but that's the airline's problem. You paid for the seat. they'll They'll arrange for that to be taken care of. I have a story about this that directly I can relate directly to what she's talking about that I'll talk about after we go through this story. But, uh, you know, she's only has two options here, right? Option one is we can arrange airlines and airplanes and and bathrooms and restaurants and everything else to accommodate somebody who's 350 pounds, in which case now we have to legislate that and all the airlines have to have these much wider seats and everything to accommodate the small percentage of people. And then we have to do... the cost-benefit analysis of that and think if that would be overall good for the vast majority of people. And I don't think it would be. I think it would probably prevent airlines from operating and from us even being able to have a commercial airline if, if the seat had to be big enough to accommodate 350-pound people. Option two, she can try and lose some weight. That's basically it. Like, there's certain things she's not going to be able to and do. She's she not going to be able afford, to be an airline yeah, she, fighter pilot. She's not going to be able to be a SEAL. She can't be a fireman. We don't want to change the world to accommodate
1: 350-pound people everywhere. Yeah, I remember I read a story about, uh, I think it was in San Diego. Uh, the They had to accommodate the bathrooms for, I think this was in San Diego, uh, and the, the the cost of retooling the bathrooms for morbidly obese people was astronomical. Yeah. So they just said, let's close the bathroom. A lot of small bathroom. small businesses would just go out of business. Yeah. So I think if people took
3: an objective, look at that, they'd see it's a bad idea. So what does she really want to have happen?
1: Yeah, and if, and if she can't afford two seats, well, then she can't afford two seats. I mean, I don't I don't know. Again, it's it's really interesting. It's the idea that it places the onus external to herself. Right.
9: That feels like a big one to me is um, uh, airplanes and airlines. And the other one that I would say is um, in the doctor's office. Just personally speaking, um, I have had doctors who refuse to touch me and refuse to examine me because of my body.
1: I find that hard to believe, but okay, maybe, okay.
9: Um, I've had, uh, you know, medical techs who have taken my blood pressure.
1: Maybe someone didn't touch her and she said, oh, it's because I'm fat. I mean, that's the doctor's job. Yeah fire them and get a new doctor. That's unethical.
3: If I was a doctor and saw somebody morbidly obese coming in to see me, I'd be happy. That's where they belong. I can yeah. come in and talk yeah. to them about losing weight,
9: taking my blood pressure three or four times because they couldn't believe that it was, you know, a sort of standard blood pressure, right. That it wasn't elevated.
1: Well, yeah, of course you would do that. Of course you would take it. Cause you would think you made a mistake because it's normative. The norm is you, th- you would be surprised by that and say, Oh, maybe I made a mistake. Let's take it again.
9: Um, and they have told me so overtly that, like, you know, I'm taking this again because normally obese patients have elevated blood pressure, right?
1: See, did you notice they use the word obese there in a medical context, but every other time it's been fat?
9: And it doesn't exactly instill confidence uh, to hear from a healthcare care provider um, that they can't actually believe that you are healthy, at least in one small way, right?
3: I think she'd rather have them lie to her. It's good for you to be 350 pounds. Don't worry about it. Your blood pressure will be just fine. Yeah.
9: Um, That feels really um, challenging and disheartening. And research shows us that that um, is sort of borne out. Basically, anytime we have uh, looked for um, bias amongst healthcare providers who are doing incredible work and who receive extensive technical training, um, they don't necessarily uh, receive training on how to, you know, interrogate their own biases on how to treat fat patients differently or better.
1: Inter- inter- interrogate their own biases to what? Someone who's coming in with a health risk for heart disease, for diabetes. Probably what, what the single biases? biggest
3: health risk that we,
1: that we know about. Yeah. What biases are, are they to inter-, inter even the idea of inter I mean, it's just the data. Mm-hmm.
9: And it shows up with, you know, less patient rapport and shorter visits and fewer tests and treatments offered, right? So there are sort of really concrete effects uh, of, of that bias that,
6: that show up for me and for other fat people as well. Yvette, I, I wanted to hear from you on this question of, of where you see this bias showing up most for people.
8: It shows up everywhere, To be quite honest, the discrimination against fat people and the anti-fat bias is something that is a part of the fat experience in every facet in every way.
1: I don't know. Should we listen to more of this clip? No. I I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of done with it. I mean, there's a whole, the rest of it is like, there's like 15 minutes left that's super interesting. They say even more deranged things. I want people to
3: be comfortable in their body. I want people to be happy. Um, there's a wide range of, it is true that there's a wide range of, of what healthy looks like. And, you know, the old body fat indicator of where you have to be a certain percentage for a certain height is outdated. And there's a lot of people oh, who BMI can be, stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people who can be stockier and a lot of people who can be thinner and they can be perfectly healthy. And a lot of that has to do with your physical fitness more than it does how, you know, how you look. That's yeah. again, very, very different from being obese. If you are morbidly fat, your entire quality of life is gonna go down the drain, you're gonna be depressed, and trying to get the rest of the world to accommodate you is a ticket for misery. So mm-hmm. hopefully there's not too many morbidly obese people that listen to this NPR story and drink the Kool-Aid because it's a recipe for being completely unhappy. Instead, you need to go talk to your doctor, right. go out there and take care of your body, and a and, and expect feel a lot your better.
1: doctor to be honest with you. Of course.
3: If yeah. your doctor's not honest, find a new doctor. <laughs> right, right. Don't get the doctor who tells you what you want to hear.
1: Right. And, and the other thing is the, the young girls are susceptible to this. We'll try to, if I remember, I'll put a link in the YouTube uh, uh, for, for the data on that. Fat studies programs were once the rage. They are this idea of applied postmodernism. Again, it's kind of an offshoot of that. This kind of anti-scientific claptrap garbage nonsense that npr is putting out is hurting people Mm -hmm. this is hurting people and the idea
3: like she talked about uh i think she said obese people on average make 14 or fifteen thousand dollars less did they control for something like for example education
1: yeah or you couldn't even get in you you can't physically get to work because you're sick because you have diabetes i mean who knows
3: there are so many other factors that you could control for so the idea that the way NPR throws out data like that is right. just is it bad thinking, bad idea. The whole thing is bad. This is a terrible, terrible episode. I hope, right. I hope not many people heard it.
1: Here's one of many episodes NPR has done about George Floyd. Let's take a listen.
3: Today, May 25th, marks two years since a police officer murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis. His death triggered a summer of protests demanding racial justice. Two years later, a man walked into a grocery store in a black neighborhood in Buffalo and killed 10 people for explicitly racist reasons. People in Buffalo are trying to find the way to address a racial divide. NPR's Alana Wise has more.
10: George Floyd's death marked a turning point in the country's already tenuous race relations. His killing at the hands of police sparked months of protests and led to calls to better address Black death at the hands of white assailants. After the top shooting this month, the people have renewed their calls for change.
6: I believe the thread between the two tragedies is the dehumanization of Black people in this country. Tolu Odunsi is
10: a lecturer-in-law at the University at Buffalo. In the city, still reeling from the racist attack, residents have made clear that there is no time to wait in addressing Black lives lost to violence. To be able to
6: kneel on someone's neck for such an amount of time that kills them in your mind, you have had to dehumanize that person in the same way to travel and shoot innocent black people at a supermarket. Again, you have to have that.
3: So we've got an issue going on here with this story where she's, where they have connected the George Floyd death to a crazy shooter who went into the grocery store and killed a bunch of people, which is a terrible, a horrible thing. Um, very little doubt in my mind that the person that committed that act at the grocery store was mentally ill. She, they say it's for explicitly racist reasons. That's because the person claimed to have explicitly racist reasons, which sometimes happens. We also had not too long before this, the Waukesha attack, right? Where we had a black driver drive through a parade and kill a bunch of people, innocent people, And you could also say that was for explicitly racist reasons. For the exact same reason, all of that driver's social media and everything else, he claimed he was doing it because he wanted to kill white people. I have a feeling that that person was probably mentally ill, deranged as well. I would be interested in the coverage NPR had of the Waukesha attack. And my bet is that they didn't call that racist or even mention the race of the driver. I think we know that from having looked back at it. But what happened with George Floyd... Was a something that's happened quite a few times. It happened in the Tony Timpa case, but even for longer, where you had somebody put on their belly, and and they died. And that was there's no evidence. As awful as that was, there's no evidence that's been presented that that was done for racial reasons. Right. It was something I don't think that police officers intended to do, but happened, and they've been charged for it. But whether they intended to do it or not, there's no evidence that's been presented that says they did it for explicitly racial reasons. And now they have connected these two cases, for whatever reason, to push forward this narrative. And you can't have it both ways. If you're going to say that this was done for explicitly racist reasons here in the grocery store, you're also going to have to talk about the Waukesha attack. And then we're we're going to have to talk about numbers and how
1: often either happens. But let's see what else she says. All right. Is it possible to accidentally kill somebody? while still seeing them as fully human? I mean, the answer is obviously yes, but let's go on.
6: You have to have that element of thinking these people are less than human and deserve death.
10: For many people, particularly white Americans, Floyd's death was a wake-up call to the realities of systemic racism.
1: Systemic racism, that's a very important term, comes up over and over again. It's from the literature. It's, uh,
10: um, it's about 90% of NPR's coverage. Yeah. The Tops Massacre was another cold reminder.
4: Really around 2020 when the whole George Floyd thing happened is when we really realized how bad racism still is in America.
10: That was 19-year-old Julia Wozinski. At a vigil recently for the Tops shooting, she and her family dropped off flowers to honor the victims. Her sister, Sarah, echoed Julia's comments about George Floyd's death An eye-opening experience.
4: I think that we need to learn that there needs to be reform with, you know, racism and gun laws, things that will prevent this from happening again.
3: So, again, they've taken the George Floyd incident, which was an aberration and extremely unusual, and they've made it out to be something that happens all the time and therefore is a systemic issue in law enforcement. And I'm sure the young woman that they're interviewing right now believes that because when they do polling, people who identify as progressive or on the left, if you ask them how many uh, black citizens or unarmed black citizens are murdered by police officers every year, the number they will give you is in the thousands. Right. And in reality, every year, and and it's been fairly consistent year after year, and you can go to the Washington Post database, the Bureau of Justice Statistics or the FBI, all of them have the same, virtually the same numbers. But every year there's about 12 cases of unarmed black people who are murdered by police officers, who are killed by police officers, I should say. There's so few that you can look at each case individually. And when you do, you'll find out the vast majority of them are involved in actively trying to attack or hurt or kill that police officer, trying to take his gun, as happened in the the case in Ferguson. So if you eliminate those cases, so so for example, the Washington Post will call an attack – a suspect who's trying to run over a police officer with a car as being unarmed, or a suspect who tries to wrestle a police officer's gun from their belt as being unarmed, or in one case there was a suspect who was beating a female police officer in the face when he was shot and they'll view them as unarmed. Unarmed doesn't mean not deadly. Anytime a police officer's on the scene, there's a gun on, on the scene which is his. If you try and take his gun, it all, all of a sudden it becomes a deadly force issue or if you're in a car trying to run him over. If we remove those cases from the data, every year you're left with one or two. So we have a nation of 350 million people where police officers will make more than 500 million interactions with citizens per year and you have one or two unarmed black people, the majority of people who are killed are white, not black. Um, But again, one or two, that's what we're actually talking about here. By contrast, there'll be six, seven, eight thousand young black men murdered every year, usually by other young black men, and the violence that occurs in these black neighborhoods, which is why the police officers are in those neighborhoods to try and save lives and to try and minimize that violence but one or two and i want you to keep that in mind that's factually accurate you can look it up yourself i encourage you to look up the data i encourage you to look Yeah and that's see. the other thing
1: don't ever believe me don't, don't we believe say. me
3: dig into it you can check out e- there's so few like i said if you look at the cases that blm puts forward there's so there's so little of them that you can look at each one individually you can you can read each case and judge for yourself what you think it was right, but we're talking about one or two and even in those yeah. one or two cases there's really no evidence that
1: it ever has anything to do with race. Yeah, and well, that was the other thing—the conflation of guns and race as as um, kind of conjoined categories. All right, let's keep keep giving it a listen.
10: Black Americans have long sounded the bell on the dangers of existing within a racist society. After the top shooting, those fears were redoubled. A recent poll conducted by the Washington Post found that 75% of black people were worried they or someone they love might be attacked because of their race.
3: That's a, a terrible thing to believe, that you're going to be hunted because of your race. Um, it's also understandable if you listen to NPR all the time. Yeah. So spec- the, the claim is very specific, attack because of your race. And so what they're talking about is they're talking about interracial violence. Interracial violence is actually very rare. Most people who are murdered are murdered by someone of the same race because most of the time you're murdered by somebody you know. But when it does occur, and this has been the case for decades, going back four or five decades, when it does occur, 85% of the time it's black on white or black on Hispanic. It's not white on on black.
1: It's black on White, the
3: attacker, the assailant, when, when the case is interracial violence, which again is very rare. I don't want to make it seem like there's an epidemic of black people attacking white people. That's not happening. It's small. Most black people when they're murdered are murdered by other black people. Most right. white people when they're murdered are murdered by other white people. But when it does occur that there's interracial violence, 85% of the time it's black on white. The assailant is is black and the victim is white. You would never know that from listening to NPR. And again, I don't think that occurs because of racial reasons. I don't think that that they're being attacked because they're white. I think it occurs because there's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of violence that happens in poor black communities. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about the reasons for that, that NPR never really discusses. but. This idea that black people are being hunted by white people or that white people are being hunted by black people is a media perpetuated myth. And so it's it's shameful when we hear people, American citizens, be scared like that or think that they're going to be hunted. Hmm. Because policy is made
1: based on that fear and those decisions. And, and we've seen the and results and of that policy and recently. It, I would also argue that this is not overly difficult to correct you have an expert on who knows the data who speaks from the data as opposed to speaking from their feelings
3: yeah there's there's some issues we talk about on here where the data there there's multiple sides and the data can be a bit, a bit ambiguous the data on this is not ambiguous we know the homicide data in the united states is is pretty rock solid we know how many people are murdered every year uh, we Wait, know you you, you go over this
1: right. in your book the gift of violence
3: yes but But people can look this up and people can find out for themselves. I'm telling you, you're never going to hear that. You're never going to understand that. You're going to get the opposite point of view, and you're going to think that Americans are killing each other left and right based on race if all you do is listen to NPR,
1: right?
10: But just 8% of respondents say they were surprised by the shooting. Gio Hernandez said that these tragedies continue because of government inaction.
8: I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. We all... Are sick and tired of being sick and tired.
10: After Floyd's death, Democratic lawmakers vowed to address systemic racism. Protests sparked nationwide.
1: Systemic racism, there it is again. Wouldn't it be great? And if and if and what I mean by systemic racism is, and just explaining for listeners, you can't because, fix a problem, you can't define exactly what that is.
10: And the George Floyd and Policing Act was introduced to Congress. But two years later the bill has stalled
1: so
3: the the there was multiple problems with that act one of them was the fact that they were going to take away qualified immunity from police officers and what that means is police officers could be sued personally by anybody that they arrest and if you do that in the united states nobody is going to be a police officer so right now here in portland we are the our manpower is half of what it should be and we've had the all-time spike in homicides in our city and, and it, Nationwide, we've had the largest spike in homicides that the United States has ever seen. Largest one-year spike. And we can't get police officers here in Portland because nobody wants the job. You take away qualified immunity from the departments, and you're not going to have anybody out there that's going to be a police officer. And the people that you're going to get aren't going to be people that you're going to want to want. And the homicide numbers we see now are going to double and triple, and it's going to be absolute mayhem on the streets. So it was a terrible idea. And it, it was an idea that was based on the slander that police officers are inherently racist or evil or, and they're out to hunt people
1: and, and police officers are not that way. And it would be nice. Nice is a terrible. World. Let me take that back. And it would demonstrate journalistic integrity and help listeners if they had someone explain what it was that they were trying to pass, why they were trying to do that, what the pros and cons. Yeah. What was in the bill. What was in the bill? Why, did, why would a reasonable person object to it? What is the evidence for the bill? What is the evidence against the bill? What is the data show? Can it, what inferences can a reasonable person look at if they look at the data?
10: And officials say racist, violent extremists, like the one police say perpetrated the top shooting, remain one of the top domestic threats.
8: This is embedded racism in our policies, in our practices, in how this city is governed and how our people are continued to be hunted.
3: That's such a serious claim to make. And there is no pushback in this piece about that. That's the problem. Some American citizen comes on and claims they're being hunted because of their race. You're going to put that on national airwaves. That's going to have major consequences for how people think how they live their life how they view how they view the police it's going to make everything worse and more violent for people and there's not even a little bit of
1: pushback yeah. Well, on what that. do you mean by hunted that's what i that's the first incredibly, question i would incredibly
3: incredibly dangerous bad thing for npr to be doing right now
10: tolu adunsi the law professor says that in order for real change to be achieved people in power have to address issues of racism head-on.
6: There may be those who do not believe in perpetuating violence against Black people, but when you don't see that the racism exists, you're not in a position to stop it. Alana
10: Wise, NPR News, Buffalo, New York.
3: There's the end of the story and there's zero data. I just want to point out the only numbers I mentioned in that whole piece was subjective. 75% of a particular population feels like, you know, they're going to be hunted. Well, I would too, if I listen to NPR's coverage, <laughs> but there's nothing in there about the actual data and what's going on. And I, and if you listening to this and you think I'm wrong, Do me a favor and look up the information because when you do, you'll find out I'm not. And what I'm saying is so different from NPR that I think in this story, more than probably any other, you can see just how biased NPR is. It's not even close. They're not even presenting a little bit of the other side. There's no
1: presentation the other side. They're presenting the facts to you in a way that's actually backwards, right? And they're pushing narratives. They're not questioning, asking, not even hard questions. They're not asking any kind of reasonable questions like, what do you mean by that? Or can you, can you explain, explain this the, to us?
3: I've had the privilege because of my job to be able to travel all over the world. I've been to all kinds of different countries. And whether you know this or not, and if you travel around, I think a lot of people will experience this. I've been to all the different continents. America is a beautiful country filled. It's not a racist nation filled with a bunch of people who hate each other. Right. But if you listen to this kind of media, this, you're going this to believe is, that's is, the
1: case. This is disinformation.
3: This is disinformation that is, by by its very nature, going to make things worse. And the, and the sad part about this, the really sad part about this, is the people who are going to suffer from this kind of misinformation the most aren't going to be the white liberals that listen to NPR. It's going to be the poor black people that live in those neighborhoods where those gunshots and those gun battles are going on daily. And you can thank episodes like this one on NPR for the environment that creates that.
1: Thank you for joining us for our final episode, the season of All Things Reconsidered. The best way to support us is to subscribe on YouTube and Substack. You can also get a t-shirt, tote bag, or sticker at peterbogosian.com, which are really great conversation starters. Thanks for joining us, and please, always reconsider what you hear on NPR, or any news source for that matter.
0: This episode of All Things Reconsidered is supported by the unquenchable flame within the Lamp of Diogenes. Visit PeterBogosian.com to learn more. you have been listening to All Things Reconsidered episode 5. You can also view this episode and previous episodes on Peter Bogosian's YouTube channel. More information on the project is online at peterbogosian.com, substack.bogosian.com, and nationalprogressalliance.org.